Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. Today, the huge shift in Pacifica representation in government. I'm worried um, that all the, the work that has been done by people before me um, will be three years that it would be, become undone. As Israel steps up operations in Gaza, we ask if public sentiment within the country is shifting. I don't really see the two-state solution being talked about anywhere seriously in Israel. And you might be surprised at some of the previous careers for our new MPs. It's more professional, it's more managerial, if you like. So you didn't see many teachers, nurses, uh, manual workers. I'll have that story for you shortly. The rule of law and free speech are pillars of a functioning liberal democracy, but in the eyes of our first guest this morning, both are under threat. Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, is a celebrated historian and former Supreme Court Justice of the United Kingdom. He's in New Zealand as a guest of the Free Speech Union. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning. I want to begin by talking about the pandemic, if we can. So it's three and a half years since New Zealand's government introduced its first lockdown. As someone who has given a lot of consideration to the implication of government responses around the world, what are your impressions of New Zealand's response? Well, New Zealand's response was tougher than that of most other countries, mainly in the extent to which it cut itself off from the rest of the world. That's an easier option for New Zealand for geographical reasons than it is for, for example, the United, the United Kingdom or indeed the United States. Um, I thought that the reaction was excessive in both countries. Why? Because, uh, first of all, because it did not take into account the enormous collateral costs of locking people down. The economic and financial costs are terrifying. <clears throat> the impact, particularly on the old and the young, uh, uh, has been really serious. The impact on the education of school-aged children uh, has been very grave. The impact, certainly in Europe, on other diseases like ischemic heart disease, uh, <clears throat> uh, dementia, uh, cancer, uh, has been negative. It's been delayed and so was less obvious at the time. Uh, but in retrospect, you can see that the consequences have been very serious. Isn't that an important point, though? In, in retrospect, you can see that some of those consequences are indeed grave. But at the moment, uh, at the moment of the pandemic, when so little was known about COVID-19... Well, we knew the essentials at the time. And I have been saying these things since a week after the UK lockdown was first imposed at the end of March 2020. Uh, so it's not entirely hindsight. I mean, the fact is we always knew that it was a, a pathogen that mainly produced serious illness and sometimes death uh, among defined classes of people, the old uh, and the uh, people with known respiratory problems, mm. about 15 different kinds of, 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 of disease. And those were the people who should have been targeted. Targeting the entire population, uh, including people whose risk of getting seriously ill or dying was very small, was a big mistake. Uh, the young uh, were the people who were least at risk, but who suffered the most from this. I thought that that was a very serious misjudgment. Mm. When it comes to infection rates and indeed deaths, those are things that are relatively easy to quantify. Whether or not the data can be solely relied upon is another issue perhaps, but they can be relatively easily quantified. Not as to begin with. I mean, it takes a while to, to see how... I mean, the infection rate, for example, was estimated at far too high 
on the basis of Chinese experience mm. at the at the outset and tended to come down mm. afterwards. But so compared to those picture. other impacts, though, right? Yeah. Yes, that's that's absolutely true. Uh, but the job of government uh, is to weigh up uh, considerations across a huge range of policy factors, social, economic, educational, and so on. Uh, that's what they're there for. And if they can't do that, frankly, it's, you know, they are betraying their trust. In philosophical terms, a society-wide lockdowns and subsequent vaccine mandates put significant restrictions on the individual. Mm in order to collectively protect the most vulnerable, right? That, 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 that's essentially, that's that, right. that, was what, that was what we were Could have been done without lockdowns. How so? Yes. Yeah. Well, because, I mean, first of all, the, the problem that most uh, um, countries faced was that they, they went from an early stage down a coercion route. Mm. And once you do that, it's necessarily going to be indiscriminate. You can't have a law that says we have a different rule for people over 65 to people under 65. It's, it's too difficult to enforce. Um, using persuasion is a lot, uh, uh, is, is a lot more sensitive uh, to the different requirements of each type of person. Uh, and it works. We know this because the one country that defied the worldwide trend and did something different was Sweden. Mm. They had no lockdown, they didn't close schools, they didn't close restaurants or other places, they only closed major venues like sports stadiums. Mm. Um, and their results were roughly comparable to the European average. Now that's a lesson which a lot of people are determined not to learn, but it's a lesson which is really vital. Mm. I, I, I mean, compare Sweden to New Zealand. Sweden has roughly twice the population of New Zealand, according yeah. to the WHO statistics at the yes. moment, about five times as many COVID deaths. Uh, that's quite possibly right. But the, the, the effect is delayed. I mean, I don't pretend to be an expert on conditions in New Zealand. Um, <clears throat> on the whole, in Europe, travel bans achieved almost nothing. I can well believe that given the geographical position of New Zealand, they might have achieved rather more there. Mm. But whatever they achieved can only ever be temporary. <clears throat> Sooner or later, the country has got to open up, as it now has done, and it, it then gets the delayed effect uh, that it avoided at an earlier stage. If we were to face a, a similar situation in the future with a, another global pandemic, for which we didn't know a, whole, a great deal about the, the infection at the time, how should governments go about making decisions when it comes to restrictions with a relative paucity of information? Well, I don't accept that the paucity of information was disabling. Uh, there was obviously less information at the outset than there was later, but mm. the information was available on the really critical points. Uh, I think that in a future pandemic, um, nobody's going to admit, least of all politicians, they're not going to admit, OK, we made a mistake. We reduced our whole society to misery uh, and reduced their standard of living for two stroke three years. No, uh, but it was a mistake, awfully sorry. Now, you can't expect politicians to say that in human terms. But what they will do is that in the quiet of their own minds, they will say, well, note to self, I'm not going to do that again. Mm. The High Court in New Zealand ruled that the first nine days of New Zealand's lockdown ultimately were illegal. But those early lockdowns were hugely popular, at least domestically. Mm. If lockdowns are instituted through a political process and the government of the day enjoys a mandate, is there any issue with the process side of things? Well, uh, not with the formal process. But the problem is, first of all, government messaging in many countries, I don't know about the position in New Zealand, uh, was uh, deliberately designed to induce 
conformity with the rules by, I think, exaggerating the nature of the problem, in particular by pretending that it affected everyone equally when it didn't. Uh, but also, the reality is that historically, uh, every despotic regime that has ever arisen has done it through fear. And fear is the great enemy uh, of democracy. Fear will induce people voluntarily, and I accept voluntarily, to accept restrictions uh, which, in a more balanced frame of mind, they would not accept. And that's why I think governments should be extremely careful about what they say in public. Again, Sweden was the model here. They treated people like grown-ups and not like infants who needed to be ordered around and told what to do. Mm. So, so what might the message have been then if we were to pursue a, a Sweden-like mm. approach in other countries? What, what would the message the be? The message, for example, in the UK would have been exactly what it actually was before we introduced a lockdown. The message was, this is a serious pathogen. Uh, it is selective in the categories of people uh, that it makes seriously ill or kills. We have got to shelter the vulnerable, people in care homes, people over a certain age, people with certain identifiable diseases. Mm. But otherwise, uh, the object should be uh, to m maintain life as normally as possible, because mm. that's actually the best way of keeping people sane. And if weighing up these restrictions with those other more difficult to quantify factors, whether it's the social cohesion, the impacts on education, all of those other things you mentioned, how should we go about trying to quantify those things were we to face another pandemic in the well, future? Well, we need the best scientific advice that we can get, but we also need to recognise that it's not only a scientific question. So we've got to balance mm. the, the advice that we get against the view that one takes about the social, economic and so on consequences in, in, in other directions. Uh, it, it very much depends on the nature of the pandemic. We've been talking about this particular pandemic, mm. other world pandemics, and there was nothing extraordinary or particularly unusual about this one have had quite different characteristics and required a different policy response. Are there any characteristics that would justify the lockdowns like we experienced? Oh, I can imagine there might well be. You know, if the, if the uh, infection rate or the uh, mortality rate uh, was significantly higher, uh, if it was really indiscriminate rather than focused on certain identifiable groups of people, one might need a different policy response. Mm. I've never suggested uh, that liberty always trumps other considerations. I simply think that it did in this case. New Zealand experienced an elongated uh, occupation on the grounds of Parliament with people protesting mm -hmm. uh, the many restrictions from COVID-19. To what extent is fostering social cohesion the responsibility of a government in a liberal democracy? Well, I mean, there are two kinds of social cohesion. There's the social cohesion uh, of people who are mutually supporting each other, helping each other out in a crisis, which is wholly admirable. And there's the social cohesion uh, of coercive conformity. Uh, and I think that far too many governments are concentrated on the second type, which is fundamentally pernicious and inconsistent with basic democratic principles. And it is a government's responsibility to foster that second kind. Yes, I think it's, uh, it's, the, it's the government's responsibility to foster the kind of social cohesion that makes people help each other. Mm. Uh, uh, it's not their responsibility uh, to promote fear, even if that produces conformity. Is there anything governments can do now to repair the wounds of COVID-19 and, and, and the, the social wounds? It's too late uh, to repair the psychological effects, particularly on children and on old people. It's too late to repair the economic and financial damage. 
I think the most that governments can do is learn some lessons to ensure that they don't inflict similar damage on our societies again. After the March 15th terror attacks in New Zealand, the Royal Commission here rec uh, recommended that New Zealand revamp its hate speech laws. Ultimately, the bulk of those changes were scrapped. But what is your view on legislation which explicitly criminalises hate speech? I think it depends entirely on how you define hate speech. In fact, most common law countries, including, I believe, New Zealand, although I'd be corrected if I'm wrong about that, um, have a principle which is a very many years standing, uh, which asks, has the speech, is the speech deliberately intended to provoke public disorder? Uh, does it have that consequence in a way that the speaker should have foreseen? Mm. Now, those seem to me to be legitimate questions. Simply asking, does the speech offend particular categories of people? That seems to me to be on the pale because it is inherent in any kind of free speech that it will include the right uh, to say things that other people don't want to hear. Mm. If it doesn't uh, do that, then it's not worth very much. Is, isn't public disorder, especially in the digital age, a subjective view? It shouldn't be. There are perfectly adequate objective tests of public disorder. Uh, you can ask yourself not, are these particular people so offended that they will turn to violence if they hear this? Uh, uh, <clears throat> you can ask yourself, or, uh, that, that I think is the wrong question. The right question is, would a reasonable person in their position uh, be so offended that he turned to violence? Uh, and I think that that's really the relevant question that people should be asking. Because after all, you can bring in extra police resources to deal with those who want to use the, the power of their elbows and the loudness of their voices to suppress other people's opinions. Mm. What groups should be given protections? I think that, uh, that any minority group uh, is entitled to some degree of protection, but I wouldn't distinguish between their position and that of the public at large. Mm. Um, uh, if you make an inflammatory speech uh, opposing uh, the interests of a, uh, an ethnic minority, say, uh, in a place where the, the ethnic minority is, the, these are the people who are present, these are the people who are going to hear you doing it. That gives rise to different public order questions than if you are speaking to the population at large. An awful, it, an awful lot depends uh, on uh, the, the circumstances in which you speak, the way you speak, and to whom you are speaking. And that's, that, that's perfectly straightforward. You are a man of many talents and pursuits, uh, as well as your legal work, you're a celebrated historian. Speaking in 2023, is the role and influence of liberal democracies in the world waning or growing in influence, do you think? I very much fear that it is waning. And I think that's going to be the pattern for quite a number of years to come. Uh, this is, there are a number of factors, but the main one is a growing intolerance of, of dissent, a growing intolerance of opinions that the speaker or actor doesn't share. Uh, I think that the social media uh, have played a large part in this by uh, accentuating dissent, by uh, associating people with those who already agree with their point of view, and by producing instant outrage uh, of a kind that once took a much longer period of time to arise. And, and I think that these are wholly negative factors. Uh, I don't see that they're going to go away very quickly. 
so I rather fear that we are in for a period of growing uh, authoritarianism uh, and growing what we can loosely call bullying mm. by one sector of our fellow citizens against another. Uh, I think that's a really sinister development, but that is what we are looking at at the moment. Are there things that our, our leaders, our governments and our society should be doing to reduce the impact of social media on those factors? I don't think you can reduce the impact of social media without engaging in precisely the same kind of censorship, which I deplore uh, when it comes from other directions. What we do need to do is to just get a bit more savvy uh, about how social media works and a bit more skeptical about the appearance of unanimous abuse, uh, which it tends to generate. Right. Jonathan Sumption, it is great to have you in New Zealand. Enjoy your time here. Thank you very much for being Thank with you. us on Q&A. After the break, she is just 30 votes ahead in what would be an extraordinary up upset result in the electorate of Teatatu. Can Angeli Nicholas win? Kia ora we welcome back to Q&A. Since Vui Mark Gosh became a minister in 1999, Pacifica MPs have had an increasing presence, not just in Parliament, but in government. But after the 2023 election, that could be about to change. Indira Stewart reports. It was one of the David and Goliath stories of the 2023 election. National's 29-year-old first-time candidate Angie Nicholas leading against longtime Labour MP Phil Twyford in a seat that's been red for 20 years. It's also the tightest electoral race in the country. Nicholas is currently ahead by just 30 votes. I'm still pinching myself, Indira, about the fact that, uh, yeah, that we've managed to win Tiatatu. But what's been a win for National, Labour says, is a huge loss for Pacific people. With 12 Pacific MPs in the previous government, now that's down to one. No, I didn't expect a scenario like this. Election, it's brutal, but it's, it's a sad feeling to know that actually you could potentially be the only Pacific MP. But ideally, of course, you want to see Pacific in there. Um, but that's not my worry because um, I have confidence in the party to deliver for our Pacific people. Special votes have traditionally benefited the left, so it's likely Nicholas will lose the Te Atatū seat. If that happens, it'll be the first time in three decades New Zealand will have no Pacific voice in government. In my life as a Labour member, I don't, I don't know what that would look like. <laughs> Anahila Kanoata'a was the head of Labour's Pacific Caucus and now she's out of Parliament. In my last six years in government, all I've known is that Pacific were at the decision-making table. So we had four cabinet ministers in the first term and then um, in the second term we had two cabinet ministers and at the highest level uh, being a deputy prime minister. That's all I know and the successes that we've achieved through that and delivered uh, was because we had our voice at the decision-making table. Low voter participation rates in Pacifica-heavy electorates has left Labour's Pacific Caucus reflecting where they went wrong. What I'm concerned about is that we didn't finish what we started. I'm just worried, concerned. I'm worried... Um, that all the, the work that has been done by people before me um, will be three years 
that it would have be, become undone. Yeah. The, um, the progress that we have made, um, it, uh, yeah, the progress we have made, it will be undone. Even National's last Minister for Pacific Peoples agrees. It does worry me. It worries me because it feels like we've gone backwards. It worries me because MMP was set up so that we could have the, vo the voices of sometimes our more minority communities so that they can have a voice in there. My whānau and my family come from the islands of Mangaia, Rarotonga, Aitutaki and Mangaia as well. Alfred Ngaro is one of four Pacifica National MPs in 30 years. I had a number of people from the Labour side come and shake my hand and say, great speech, wrong party, great speech, wrong party. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to ask one of them, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, you know, you're Pacifica, you should be part of the Labour Party. He did leave National eventually, vowing in 2020 never to return to politics. Then, just 11 weeks out from this year's election, he launched the New Zealand Party, which he describes as a Christian values party with policies for all. Ngaro says representation in government for every voice matters. You have to have those views and those values as well. And you have to show the fact is, is that actually you value their contribution. What do they have to add you know, to the running of a country, really, and to the, not just for Pacifica, but for all communities. And even with Pacifica representation, does it mean you get better outcomes? I what would you say about Labor's record in this um, Look, good intentions, but I didn't see the track record of, did we move the dial? Now, can National do that? Well, it's yet to be seen. Can they do that with potentially no Pacific MPs in government? No, I don't believe they can. There's good people in there. But again, I think you've got a very difficult coalition partner that doesn't see the value of Pacifica values and a Pacifica voice. Ngaro means ACT, who committed to abolishing the Ministry of Pacific Peoples if elected. Coalition deals could mean cuts to the Ministry's budget. I am seriously worried about that. I'm seriously worried about that because um, that basically means there won't be a... Won't be, um, we, we won't be recognised in, um, in the service delivery of the government. So I'm just scared about what that might look like. ACT leader David Seymour joked during the campaign about sending 17th century terrorist Guy Fawkes into the ministry. If it was meant to be a joke, then it probably wasn't funny to a lot of Pacific people. But we've been clear as a party that um, that is not our position, that is ACT's position, and we will work together as coalition to on, on those different things. How did you feel personally uh, when David Seymour made those comments? A little bit annoyed um, as a Pacific person. Not only is that offensive to people, but I believe that, again, he does not understand the system. You know, unity is about diversity, right? And being collectively united together for one purpose. We're one people with many parts. Then learn what actually unity and diversity actually means and understand it and not be afraid of it. Now, can you do that without a voice in there? I don't think so. Seven Pacific MPs from Labour and the Greens will be in opposition with no decision-making powers. Ganungata says Pacific opposition will be loud and she hopes the new government listens. My message to them is to do that, is to look into the community how to respond to the Pacific needs of, the, of Aotearoa, really. Um, and perhaps um, what we saw in COVID-19 was that the Pacific workforce, uh, the Pacific, the essential workers, were the Pacific people 
you know, providing and um, providing and earning an income to support the economy of the country. So we are an important uh, population, but we also need, there is a diff different way to work with us. Ngaro says this election result is a lesson for all communities to make sure their voices are heard at every election and to stand for the values they believe in. I think the biggest thing for me is, um, uh, oh, here we go. You know, it's to see my kids <laughs> and to hear them to be really proud of who I am and, and, and standing. And I just know that you know, there are, there are people out there, Pacifica people, many other people, you know, when we've got people who've got the courage, like our mums and dads, who fought hard for us to be where we are, we choose to speak our truth and be not afraid. And so that the country that we live in, others can have the same courage too, no matter where they're from. And Dara Stewart reporting there. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can flick us an email, you can find us on X, the thing that used to be called Twitter, or on Facebook. Next, we're in the Middle East, three weeks since the Hamas attack, as Israel hammers Gaza. What's the risk of a wider conflict in the region? Kia ora te whanau. welcome back to Q&A. Israel has stepped up operations in Gaza, with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu confirming Israeli troops have now entered the territory. Israel has undertaken a huge bombing campaign overnight, and communications remain almost completely cut for the two million people in Gaza. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights warns large-scale ground operations in Gaza could lead to catastrophic consequences. In a public address a short while ago, Benjamin Netanyahu warned it will be a long and difficult war. The Hamas-run health ministry says almost 8,000 people have been killed in Gaza so far. New Zealander Alex Jones studied international conflict resolution in Tel Aviv and has spent years working in Israel and the West Bank. We spoke a short time ago and I asked him how the IDF's incursion into Gaza is being received within Israel. Uh, yeah, I guess the Israeli public really do feel like something has to be done. You know, the attacks really struck, I think, at the very heart of, you know, what it is to be Israeli. And I think that there's a huge desire to exterminate Hamas, whatever that means. And so I think that for most people, although you know, nobody wants civilian lives to be taken, I think that generally there's like a lot of support for it. Uh, and I think that people do feel that action is, is necessary at this stage. Since the Hamas attacks, has the appetite for a ground invasion changed at all? Are there people within Israel who think this is a bad idea? For sure. I mean, almost every single family has someone who's been caught up into reserves. And I think Israelis know more than probably almost any other uh, people how violent wars can be and how deadly they can be. So there's certainly people who are, you know, very nervous and, and certainly even opposed to it. And I do think that over the course of, you know, the last few weeks, as maybe the blood has kind of cooled a little bit, that I definitely think that the overall atmosphere has changed. Um, I think that people are certainly a lot more uh, nervous. They've also seen perhaps that the military isn't the kind of omnipotent, all-powerful force that they maybe in some cases thought it was. And I think people are also very aware how dangerous it's going to be to fight in Gaza. So there are definitely people who are very you know, reluctant to do that. But I think that uh, overall, there's still this, this desire and this 
most need, I think, to, to respond and to respond strongly and to yeah, try and uh, eliminate Hamas. Let's consider the situation in Gaza at the moment. So the internet has been cut off, communications have been cut, there are shortages of essential supplies and only limited access for humanitarian aid so far. According to the Hamas-run health ministry within Gaza, almost 8,000 people have been killed so far. How would you assess the concern amongst Israelis for civilian casualties within Gaza? Yeah, I think, look, people are, are human. You know, I don't think well, it's hope that no one wants to see civilian casualties. But I do think that still the overall feeling is that the nature of the Hamas attacks warrants a, a serious, serious response. And I think that these attacks stirred up some of the worst memories for, or if not personal memories, collective memories for many Israelis of the Holocaust and pogroms. And I think that in many people's eyes, it does kind of warrant a very strong response. I think as well, uh, it's almost been compared to a lot of the great international actions to kind of wipe out evil, um, international responses to Nazism or ISIS. So I think that overall, the Israeli public still very much believes that Hamas needs to be exterminated. And it's maybe unfortunate if people are going to be you know, caught up in that. But I think that that uh, need for a strong response kind of over overwhelms um, these, these serious humanitarian concerns. Yeah. So 1,400 Israelis were killed in the Hamas attack. And, and I mean, the nature of the attacks and very deliberate targeting of civilians was, was barbarism. But if the cost of improving Israeli security, destroying Hamas military infrastructure and attempting to rescue uh, hostages is thousands or even tens of thousands of civilian casualties, do Israelis consider that to be morally justifiable? I think we'll have to, uh, you know, when the numbers get to that point, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously see what, what happens at that stage. And I think at this point, many Israelis would argue that maybe this is when the international community kind of should step up and, and should step in. Uh, I think that for a lot of Israelis, this, this feels like they're being kind of forced to fight this barbarism on their own and that there's a lot of, you know, cheap words being thrown around. Um, I don't want to say that there's a number at which Israelis would find this morally acceptable or not. Um, obviously, these are, these are a lot of people being killed, which is really just the most tragic thing. Um, but again, I do feel like for, for most Israelis, this is a, a necessary step, uh, and it's going to be unfortunate that there are civilians who are in the way of it. Talk to us a little bit more about the international response. The international community was clearly appalled by the Hamas attacks. But is there a sense within Israel that sentiment within the international community has shifted over the last couple of weeks? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, and let's be fair, Israel held the moral high ground for a very short amount of time in this. You know, the response was so brutal and so fast. Um, and I think, you know, people are very generally happy with the response, for example, of President Biden in the United States. Um, but I think beyond that, what's happened in the, in the United Nations has really shocked people. And obviously the wave of, you know, anti-Semitic attacks, which have grown, you know, throughout a lot of the Western world in Europe and other places, uh, has really shocked a lot of Israelis. And I feel like they are uh, constantly kind of surprised that they're on the back end of, of bad press internationally. I think they feel like this is a, a justified response and it's very uh, painful for them to see the, the way that the world is, is responding so quickly and, and so vehemently against what's going on in Gaza. Mm. Do you think there has been any broader reflection within Israeli society since the attacks about 
the relationship between Israel and the Palestinian cause? Yeah, look, I mean, I personally don't think there's any way that, you know, the Palestinian cause, uh, or Hamas probably for that matter, can be can be wiped out. And I think that, uh, you know, going in there all guns blazing is not a, a winnable strategy, my personal opinion. Um, but I do think that for most people today in Israel, um, the Palestinian cause and, and Hamas has kind of become conflated in a lot of ways after these attacks. And, you know, the any discussions of peace or reconciliation or even sort of basic coexistence is, is pretty pretty hard to imagine in the Israeli discourse right now. People are still you know, really traumatized by what went on uh, those you know, a few weeks ago. And so I think that, you know, talking about the Palestinian causes is not really high on the, uh, on the agenda for most Israelis today, mm. here and now. What I'm wondering is if people look at those Hamas attacks and, and as per some of the international response whereby people condemned the attacks but said at the same time that as appalling as those attacks were, they did not happen in a vacuum in that Gaza had essentially been subjected to a blockade, uh, the West Bank had been subject to, to occupied Israeli forces for a long time. I just wondered if there was any sense within Israeli society and within discourse in Israel at the moment that perhaps, not that the attacks were justified, but, but perhaps um, this was the impetus for greater efforts into finding some sort of a two-state solution or similar. Look, there are certainly people who do feel like that. There is still a small peace camp um, who are definitely, you know, looking in the mirror, I think, at this stage. But by and large, I, I don't think that's... It's a consensus opinion. I don't think there's a lot of navel gazing going on here. I think, uh, you know, initially it was kind of fear and rage and revenge. Nowadays it's maybe a bit more tempered than that, but I still think that uh, for most, you know, men on the men and women on the street, um, it's 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 not about mm. what we've done. The courts. I think that's still uh, maybe a, a few steps down the down the line before people hopefully come to that conclusion. What kind of conversations are you having with with Palestinian friends at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I've done quite a lot of work in the West Bank, so I do have some, you know, good friends there. And generally, people are really, really upset um, and really angry. I think, um, you know, for most people living in the West Bank, it's been decades of living under occupation, uh, and for some people, it's been kind of tolerating that. Others have been more, you know, aggressively spawning against it. But I think now people are really fed up. This is kind of the the straw that's breaking the camel's back for a lot of people. I hear a lot of anger. Um, and you see that in the streets, you know, there's people dying in the West Bank all the time. And unfortunately, it's kind of being overlooked because of the, the numbers of, of casualties in, in Gaza. Um, but yeah, the West Bank is also heating up quite a lot. And it's, uh, it's, it's not looking great there either at the moment, unfortunately. Yeah, talk to us a bit more about that, because just, just to look at the incidents of the last couple of weeks, dozens of people have been killed in the West Bank, and usually that would be huge news within Israel. Are the tensions within the West Bank getting any attention within Israel at the moment? Yeah, certainly a bit. Um, you know, there's a lot of soldiers still in the West Bank. There's 600,000 Israeli settlers there. Um, and, you know, many reservists are being sent into the West Bank. So people are certainly very concerned about what goes on there and want to, you know, try and keep things as calm as possible. Um, but I think at the moment, you know, in, in Israeli media, the media that I've uh, absorbed has still mostly been focusing on, you know, what happened inside Israel. That's definitely the focus. People are still very kind of traumatized on uh, those stories and trying to draw out, you know, some lessons from them perhaps. 
Um, but the West Bank is definitely a, a real concern, I think, at a strategic level. Uh, mm. the, the fear that if it really kick off there in a big way, uh, it might be you know, much, much harder to fight a war on two, three, even four fronts. So mm. uh, people in the higher echelons are certainly very concerned about it. What's your assessment of how this whole episode might impact Benjamin Netanyahu? Wow, uh, that's a really tough question. He's certainly a fighter, if nothing else. Um, he manages to kind of put off big decisions, it seems, and always seems to kind of stick around. But I think a lot of you know core people who did support Netanyahu have been really shocked by what's happened. Uh, and I think there's a lot of people who hold him accountable for this. He hasn't taken any kind of personal responsibility, hasn't like apologized or uh, even visited many of these communities. So I think uh, his you know political career is definitely um, on the ropes. It's certainly been on the ropes for many reasons for, for quite a while now. But uh, he's, like I said, a survivor, he's a fighter. And I think that as long as the war kind of continues, um, you know, he'll still be the guy behind the behind the, the reins and he'll do anything before he gives them up. He's certainly pretty comfortable, I think, in these positions of power. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to see how he's going to dig his way out of this one, to be honest. Whether it's within Israel society or within Palestinian communities, does anyone at the moment talk about a path to a peaceful two-state solution? Yeah, the two-state solution, you know, from what I've seen travelling around the region is it's not really talked about that much. I guess the two-state solution is maybe the, the still the dream of the kind of labour movement, the left-wing movement of President Rabin and the people who signed the Oslo Accords in the 1990s. But I think that the, you know, kind of peaceniks of today, the activists of today, they're not really talking about the two-state solution anymore. Certainly the centre of Israeli politics is not talking about the two-state solution. The right, absolutely not. Um, I don't really see the two-state solution being talked about anywhere seriously in Israel. The only place you do hear about it is internationally, where it is still the kind of modus operandi. That's what people are talking about. You know, Biden is still, you know, blowing that horn. Uh, but yeah, in, in Israel-Palestine itself, it's pretty hard to see the two-state solution getting much traction and, and getting off the ground, if I'm honest. And so how do Israelis see this ending? It's pretty hard to see a, a, a near peaceful resolution, isn't it? It really is. Um, but I always say, if you're not kind of an optimist, then you're in some ways part of the problem. You've got to cling to cling to hope that things do always change. Um, and maybe, maybe, if we are going to find some small kind of silver lining or glimmer of hope out of all this mess, it's that change sometimes does bring about positive change, you know. Um, and maybe there's some new path that we haven't kind of seen yet. But it's pretty hard to see a, a strategic goal here that is going to bring about a peaceful solution in the near term. Um, and it's not really something which I hear a lot of Israelis even talking about at the moment. For them, I think the goal is to eliminate Hamas. That will bring about, you know, this kind of peace in the, in the, in the short term. But it's pretty hard to destroy some of the ideas that Hamas stand for. And not a lot of Israelis, I think, or Palestinians for that matter, are very optimistic at the moment about, you know, a peaceful resolution in a bigger sense. It's New Zealander Alex Jones speaking to us from Tel Aviv. Coming up on Q&A, the Kennedy name is steeped in US political history. We look at what RFK Jr. will do to the race for the White House. Kia ora we welcome back. 
Once the special vote results are released next week, Christopher Luxon should be in a position to form New Zealand's next government. It'll mark an incredible rise for a leader who throughout the campaign leaned into his relative lack of political experience, seeking to define his leadership record through his business career instead. But what of Parliament's new MPs? What careers have they enjoyed before being elected? What experiences will they bring to the House? Here's Fenner Owen. Yes, it's a new life for 47 MPs, but will their old lives equip them with the skills they need to be effective MPs and representative of the people? So we may still see some other surprises come into Parliament. Next Friday. While the new MPs were away writing their maiden speeches, we asked political commentator Dr Bryce Edwards what he makes of the new intake. If you look at the big picture, this latest intake looks very different to what we saw you know, decades ago. It's browner, it's more female, it's younger, it's less straight, and so it's more broadly uh, reflecting the demographics of New Zealand. But of course it's also more business, it's more professional, it's more managerial if you like. So you didn't see many teachers, nurses, uh, manual workers like you did in the 20th century. Now union the, workers? Yeah, absolutely. Union? No union workers. But there are the farmers. Last parliamentary term, Axe Mark Cameron often made the point he was the only working farmer in Parliament. Now he's joined by seven others. National had become disconnected with its base. It wasn't. It's rural base. It's rural base and it's farming base. It wasn't bringing into um, politics its traditional constituency. So National, over the last three years, has really done an amazing job to reorientate itself, to rebuild and bring in people from farming backgrounds. Act New Zealand First as well have done this. Beyond the working farmers, there are others with direct links to ag and horticulture. So now, 18 out of 120 parliamentarians have some farming background. Among the new MPs, there are seven who have been in local government. In fact, one deputy mayor, one former mayor. What does that say? Increasingly, we're seeing a lot more councillors or party activists, essentially, going into local government first as a stepping stone, as a, a way of learning politics, and then going into parliamentary politics. So it's a launch pad. It is a problem, of course, if local government just does become a stepping stone. Is it too nasty to suggest that, you know, every election some come in out of self-interest and, and not to serve the country? Uh, politics has always involved people coming into, into Parliament um, with their own career in mind, but it does feel like we're having a, a, a big qualitative shift towards more careerists in politics. And so in the past, traditionally, um, Labour and National MPs would come into Parliament after a long uh, service, I guess, as a teacher, farmer, business person, and it would be public service. It would be something they'd do at the end of the their career and it wasn't a stepping stone to anywhere else um, whereas today you have a lot more people coming in in their 20s 30s 40s and politics is actually their career goal and they want to be in there for decades and um, it does change their mindset 
Along with farmers and former city and district councillors, the other standout is science. Seven MPs have a science background. There are doctorates in biology, cancer research and experts in ecology and climate change. I think an historic imbalance of not having enough scientists and there's a real fashion I think for uh, the public knowing that we've got these big problems, climate change, environmental degradation, problems, you know, big challenges in IT, that you need scientists that, to solve some of those policy issues. There are a handful of lawyers but not nearly as many as in the 2020 intake. Labour, like the other parties, have really professionalised over the last three or four decades. Um, so this is a problem when you have a party that traditionally wants to represent their constituency of ordinary working class, lower socioeconomic people, but they're bringing in people from law backgrounds. The last Labour caucus had 14 lawyers in it. I've got a lot to learn. I'm just uh, looking forward to catching up with everyone. Don't be fooled by the standard suits and stock answers. There are surprises, interesting personal histories. The MP for Ōtaki, Tim Costley, for instance, once worked for the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, but more famously starred in a viral video when he was a war zone Air Force pilot. I'm a pilot in the military Nationals Vanessa Vinnick was an army doctor in Iraq. And then there's the Greens, Steve Abel, a veteran conservation activist who protested from treetops and seashore. Out to Anadarko, out to that drill ship to let them know they're not welcome. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. But for all these MPs, it's a new day, a new life, and that means they may not see much of the summer. This new government incoming has campaigned on there being all these crises, this urgency, and for them to go away for months just wouldn't make any sense. Um, and so I think uh, we're going to see Luxon as having a lot of urgency and um, telling his MPs that, no, do not book in a summer holiday. <laughs> Fina Owen there with the new intake. Hey, Akuane, we'll be right back. Tina Akoto, welcome back to Q&A. It is exactly a year next week until voters in the United States head to the polls to elect the president. The race is shaping up as a repeat of 2020. Joe Biden and Donald Trump. But Trump's myriad legal issues and a potential spoiler by the name of Kennedy look set to complicate the equation in the coming months. A short time ago, I asked One News US correspondent Logan Church about the state of the race. Well, at this stage, we're looking very much like we're going to see another Donald Trump and Joe Biden rematch. Joe Biden really pitching himself as a candidate focused on unifying the country, both domestically, where we have, just like New Zealand, a really quite terrible cost of living crisis, which is hurting many Americans, but also from a foreign policy perspective, he's deeply concerned about events happening in overseas, most recently in Israel as well. Donald Trump, though, is very much campaigning on the narrative of the American way of life is under attack. And in his words, he made America grace again once, and he's the one that's needing to be back in power to do it all over again. What role do you think Donald Trump's legal issues are going to play in the campaign? 
Yeah, and that's one of the big question marks over what a potential another, I guess, Trump presidency may might look like. He's facing a huge number of legal problems, dozens and dozens of charges, just among, just for some of them. He's um, facing charges in relation to the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C. Right now, he's in the middle of a trial in New York City where he's been accused of committing business fraud. He's uh, about to... Uh, he's facing another trial down in Florida over um, allegedly keeping huge stacks of secret documents at his Mar-a-Lago resort. He's also facing legal action over alleged attempts to overturn the 2020 election result in Georgia. Now, Donald Trump denies everything, and his message has very much been, this is a political persecution by a Department of Justice that is filled with Joe Biden supporters. Now, that is a message that is resonating with his loyal followers. He's not the first political candidate who's faced legal woes to use that line, and he certainly will not be the last. The question, though, is whether he can convince the people in the middle, the people on the fence, whether he's right uh, or not. And over the coming year or so, it's going to be really interesting to see how the chips fall in these many cases. How do Americans feel about it, once again, being Donald Trump versus Joe Biden? Look, pretty, I think, unenthused, to be completely honest with you. For example, a recent poll came out and it found that only about a third of Americans were either somewhat or very excited about a Donald Trump-Joe Biden rematch. However, at this stage, Jack, it looks like that's what essentially they're going to get. Many Americans are wondering whether there might be someone different or whether someone could be brought up through the ranks, but this election at this stage, saying there's still over a year to go, it does very much look like it's going to be a Biden v Trump rematch. Well, let's just consider the possibility of alternatives for a moment. So the Democrats are not running a primary campaign. They said that Joe Biden is their candidate. The Republicans, uh, Republicans, of course, are running a primary campaign. Is there any possibility that someone from within the GOP or from within the Dems could end up being their party's candidate? Yeah, well, just to quickly cover off the Democrats, the short answer to that is, at this stage, um, no, the Democrats have very much fallen in line behind Joe Biden, the incumbent president. They're very supportive of him. Now, on the Republican side, it is a lot more interesting. Now, at this stage, Donald Trump is the clear front-runner. Among Republicans, he's polling around 47 48%. Um, and the next group of people are far behind. But second place is currently Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida. Now, he came into this race with a hiss and a roar, and I think it would be fair to say he probably hasn't capitalised on that as much as um, people were expecting him to. But the other rising star from the Republican side is Vivek Ramaswamy, who's a 38-year-old um, entrepreneur who made his money in the pharmaceutical business. His, um, his polling is going up very, very slowly, but there is certainly a, a bit of buzz and excitement around him. Whether, though, that comes anywhere near come next November to, um, well, next year, rather, when the Republicans have to select a candidate, whether that comes near to Donald Trump, well, who knows at this stage. But as it stands right now, Donald Trump is far in the lead there. And there is a possibility of a third-party disruptor. Tell us about RFK Jr., 
Yes, well, the Kennedys are back, or trying to get back at least. Um, Robert Kennedy Jr. is the nephew of um, JFK, and a couple of weeks ago he announced that he would be making a run as an independent. Now, this is quite interesting, because historically independents don't typically win presidential races. Well, they don't. This is not a history of that happening. But there is certainly a question over where he may take votes from, and that's a really interesting uh, question. Now, the people who are talking loud, loudest about um, Robert Kennedy Jr. are actually the Republicans, indicating there might be some concern that he could take votes away from a candidate like Donald Trump, split that vote there, and potentially give the election next year to Joe Biden. So a lot of big question marks there. He's certainly a controversial candidate, though. He's a, a, a known... Um, um, anti-vaxxer, for lack of a better word. He's been against uh, vaccines for a very long time. And I'm not just talking about COVID. Um, if you go back to the Samoan measles crisis in 2019, for example, he came out very strongly against the use of MMR vaccines. And he's been known to promote um, misinformation and disinformation around the safety of vaccines. So it's going to be really interesting as to where he may draw support from. But he is drawing support. On a recent poll, he was scoring around 13 percent, which is quite high for an independent candidate, especially when you consider that is about a th uh, only a third of where both Donald Trump and Joe Biden were sitting in the same poll. Mm. So it's certainly someone that many people here are keeping a very close eye on. That being said, under the US system, it's really hard to get on the ballot, right? Yeah, so one of the big challenges for Robert Kennedy Jr. is he has to get onto the state ballots, and there's a lot of them. Now, if you are the nominee for the Republicans or the Democrats, you essentially get on automatically. That's not the case for an independent. He has to petition each state with thousands of signatures to get on the ballot. So that's a challenge there. And I think it's also worth mentioning that both the GOP and the Democrats, they are a big machines, not just a political machine, but also a fundraising machine. And they are institutions that have been here for a very, very long time. So it's an uphill battle for any independent candidate. So it's going to be interesting to see what he can achieve over the coming months. Indeed. That is US correspondent Logan Church reporting from New York. Kumatu. That is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. Nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. This time next week, we will have the complete results for the 2023 election, 2pm Friday. They will be released by the Electoral Commission. Hey te wiki. Until next weekend, we will see you. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.